It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, just real quick before we get started today, our podcast of the month here at the Agora Podcast Network is The History of England by David Crowther, which if you're a history podcast listener, this needs absolutely no introduction uh, David's podcast is massive. Everyone knows about it at this point. You should know about it at this point. If you don't, go listen. It's got 244 episodes. So if you are walking to the moon or something, this will occupy all of that time, literally. And it's terribly addictive. So be very cautious. He's he's probably got the best straight up narrative history podcast I've ever heard. And it is engaging, it's gripping, you don't get lost, you start to really care about England for some weird reason that you can't explain later to your American friends who think you're now a red coat traitor. But it's a lot of fun along the way. History of England. Search for it. It will be the one that comes up because it's the best. Enjoy. Everyone to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we're particularly excited because we have a great guest. This is Lantern Jack of the Ancient Greece Declassified Podcast, and we're going to be talking today about parallels between the modern United States and antiquity, in particular the late Roman republics and the late Athenian and Greek democracies and constitutional states. And we're going to learn, hey, how much can we learn from these and how much are they a warning to us today? For some quick housekeeping, uh, if you don't know, the Agora Podcast Network has a new Facebook group called the Agora Podcast Listeners Forum. It's actually really active. Uh, we share a lot of articles. We discuss a lot of stuff. A lot of listeners uh, spend a lot of time on it chatting to each other, chatting to us. It's a great way to be in touch with us. So just go to Facebook and find that Agora Podcast Listeners Forum. We'd love to see you there. And now let's introduce Jack. So often we hear that the United States is compared to ancient the ancient world, typically the Roman Republic or the Greek democracy. And usually it's some grim warning. Anything from income inequality to military overreach to sexual depravity is going to bring the United States Republic to ruin, just like in Rome or Greece. But historical comparisons can be very difficult to make. We need to learn from the past, and learning well means understanding both what's similar and what's different between our time and the past, as well as understanding which of these similarities and differences were really important in driving what happened next. So today we're going to really do a, a deep dive 
um, into some of these historical comparisons. And just for a little context for everyone to know where Lantern Jack is coming from, he's a graduate student in ancient philosophy. And again, his podcast is called Ancient Greece Declassified. And he uses this podcast to make the classics more accessible and exciting, which, you know, if you, if you think about ancient Greece and ancient Rome, some people maybe are into it and some people aren't, but really there's a lot of rich material there. And that's exactly what Lantern Jack does. He brings in experts and archaeology, history, art, and all other sorts of stuff. I um, particularly like his episode on uh, where he discussed Aristotle and whether or not Aristotle held science back for 2,000 years. And you go, huh? Aristotle? Science? 2,000 years? And it's like, yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. So go listen to it. Jack, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so what we're going to do today is we're going <clears> to... <throat> we, we've been listening to Lantern Jack for quite a while. And you know, we realized that he's, he's very good at having a lot of rich conversations. Also is you know, very informed about the history of antiquity. We are marginally informed about the history of antiquity, uh, but we, you know, we are aware of a lot of the questions that modern people have about how we compare to the past. We love Jack's show, and we're just so tickled that he is joining us today. And Jack, let me start you with our, our first question to kick the conversation off. In the United States today, we're seeing rising income and wealth inequality. Uh, there's some worry that this is going to lead to social and political instability in the country. And one question that I think people grapple with that we don't know the answer to is how much did wealth inequality play a part in the social and political instability of the late Roman Republic and the rise of demagoguery in ancient Athens? And um, what was different about it then versus now, either in the issue of inequality slash instability itself or the environment and systems in which those events took place? Both great questions. Um, I think in the case of the late Roman Republic, rising economic inequality was a decisive factor in the downfall of the Republic. And that's pretty undisputed. In the case of Athens, it's a lot more tricky because Athens lost a war. I mean, that's the real reason that it, Athens was kind of dethroned from its position as a little empire in the Aegean. So there, there were more um, external factors at play. In the late Roman Republic, when uh, you know, the Romans had their major constitutional crises, they had already defeated all external enemies that mattered. So uh, they had no one else to blame but themselves for their downfall. And their economic inequality was absolutely key. Certainly, it's the case that demagogues such as um, Cleon would talk about, would you know, that his rise to power was driven by, in part, pitting the sort of, quote, common Athenian citizen against the noble elite Athenians who are, you know, oligarchs and, and you know, running the country poorly um, to the detriment of the common Athenian citizen. That's at least my understanding. So one, do you think that inequality may have had something to do with the rise of Cleon? And to what extent do you think demagogues like Cleon actually negatively impacted the, um, you know, the Athenians' performance and decision-making in the Peloponnesian War. Um, because basically what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm leading you to, like, is there an indirect link between inequality in Athens and their downfall? No, I mean, that's, that's kind of the million-dollar question. Uh, the problem is it's extremely difficult to measure economic things like that, right? Like, we, we don't have much data. So, you know, we don't have any 
writer from the time period who talks about economic inequality. We don't even know the exact population of Athens. So we have to use very indirect uh, evidence like archaeological material and then, you know, reading between the lines in the tragedies that survive from the period to try to see is there any hint of increasing inequality. It's really, really difficult to say. It's much easier to tell in the case of Rome. But one of the interesting things about Athens is that Athens had really sophisticated mechanisms in place to prevent economic inequality from increasing. You know, they had the system of liturgy, which is the institution where rich people uh, do some really big charitable work, whether it's uh, paying for the production of theatrical plays or paying for the maintenance of a warship, which employed you know, 70 citizens as rowers. Unlike today, these uh, charitable activities were not tax deductible, right? So uh, the the super rich in Athens couldn't engage in charitable activities and still, you know, become richer philanthropic capitalists. Their charitable activities really did force money to get pumped back into the system. So I think that's a really interesting question in Athens is the way that they kept money getting back into the system from the pockets of the rich. So especially in modern America, when we talk about economic inequality, the question of demagogues comes up. And Eric mentioned this briefly a moment ago. And I want to ask you sort of a, I guess it's a social science question about demagogues, but we won't get pedantic about it. So to what extent do you think demagogues contributed to the downfall of these ancient civilizations, either Rome or Athens? Or do you see the rise in demagoguery as a symptom of broader trends? Can you even separate the two? And actually, before you get into that, how would you even define demagogue? Well, it's very difficult to define a demagogue. (laughs) So let me just give you a kind of uh, semi-humorous answer. A demagogue is a populist politician who messes up. (laughs) I like it. I mean, take Pericles, right? Is he a demagogue? Well, he was a absolutely populist leader. Didn't really mess up. You know, Athens was doing great as long as he lived. And uh, he got the Acropolis, you know, the Parthenon built in the Acropolis. So he left behind a nice monument that he could take partial credit for. So history has looked kindly on Pericles and not deemed him a demagogue. Then fast forward to Cleon. Cleon uh, used a lot of similar tactics. Both of them were accused, by the way, of being, you know, demagogues by the the satirists of the day but cleon really messed up so he's a demagogue you know it's really hard to draw the line i guess i guess the one thing uh is that you know a demagogue is always concerned with the here and now with gaining an advantage right now based on a a popular base of support I mean, that's a pretty fascinating definition because it implies that the definition is contingent upon the outcome. Would you would you say then that the since Cleon is so similar to Pericles, and for, for folks who don't know, Pericles came before Cleon, it was before the big war between Athens and Sparta, and it was kind of when the Athenian Empire was getting built up. Do you think that really they're, they're both one of the same and therefore d- distinguishing whether or not they were drivers of events rather than symptoms is even a distinction worth making? 
Well, I mean, I don't think they're the same. Like every historian, I'm limited by the evidence available, and the evidence available portrays Pericles favorably and Cleon very negatively, so I can't get away from that. You know, I see Cleon as more of a demagogue because that's what I read about him. But I think the question about whether demagogues are symptoms or causes of turmoil and uh, turbulence is really interesting. And uh, a lot of history has been written under the uh, assumption that it's these leading figures that cause history to happen. More recently, there have been interpretations of history where single players are not, they're like epiphenomena, they're not the driving factors. And I subscribe more to that view. So for me, there are times when populist politics just erupts, and then you get more populist leaders, and there you get more demagogues. Like, So let me give you the example of the late Roman Republic. Uh, Rome had its first major crisis in the 130s and 120s BC with the Gracchi brothers who wanted to solve the problem of economic inequality by redistributing wealth among the people, right? They were both lynched. And there were, in the next hundred years, there were four other tribunes of the plebs, these kind of uh, popular politicians with a popular base who also tried to solve the problem of economic inequality by redistributing land. And they were also murdered. Add Julius Caesar to the mix, add Catiline, these other famous populist leaders, they were also murdered. So you have a hundred years of people uh, who we can identify as uh, somewhere on the demagogic spectrum. And they're all responding to the same social conditions, trying to take advantage of the same problems, they're all dead. The Republic is ruined at the end. It's hard to see them as the driving forces. Clearly, there are huge systemic uh, problems and forces at work. And they are these little, sorry, li they are the most visible and historically um, talked about examples. But there's a lot of stuff going on beneath there, beneath the surface. I think that's a fairly compelling interpretation that, you know, in particular in, in the late Roman Republic, you had these deep systemic problems that were leading to a rise in populism and a, and a rise in political, you know, polarization really and, and instability. And so we mentioned rising income inequality, which, you know, just for context, after the Third Punic War in which Carthage was destroyed, a lot of Romans who were landowners, who were farmers, lost their land because they'd been gone for years as opposed to just for a season at a time. And their their fields became fallow and they couldn't get them back up in time. So they, they sold their property. And so you had richer landowners acquiring tons of land. And then these guys were jobless and they'd go to the city of Rome and they became this sort of jobless urban pleb. And, and this was a new thing for Rome, at least in mass, after the Third Punic War. Lanterjack, what other major systemic issues were going on for Rome that led to it tearing itself apart that weren't there during the, you know, the Republic's heyday? That's a great question. I can think of a couple of things off the top of my head. One is the increasing size of the Roman state, right? Rome, Rome's constitution was optimized for a moderate to large city-state. And by the late Republic, that same constitution was still being used to run a huge empire, basically. So uh, you had many 
citizens that were living far away from Rome. And the rich ones of those could obviously either have money to travel to Rome for elections or send money to Rome to influence elections. So you can see how the expanded geography and the fact that money could travel from rich citizens in the provinces to Rome to influence elections, all these things are changing what used to be a city-state. Another important factor is that as Rome expands and conquers all these other areas, they enslave entire populations and bring them into Italy. So Italy is flooded with uh, cheap labor in the form of slaves. This is the factor that caused the Gracchi brothers to you know, start their attempts at reform. All of this cheap labor in the form of slaves makes the small farmer unable to compete with these large plantations that have hundreds of slaves. So all of the traditional farming class of citizens, which was the backbone of the Roman Republic, they were all basically dispossessed and came to Rome and became the mob. So those are some other systemic changes that are happening towards the end of the Republic. So you mentioned two things that I kind of want to focus on in this next question, which is the conquest of Rome and the economic disparity, but also the economic power. I mean, when you talk about these massive plantations, latifundia as they called it, right? Although I'm sure my Latin is being mispronounced. No, well said. Thank you. Thank you. Latifundia. For everyone out there, it's a good word. Use it frequently in conversation and uh, also recommend reconsider. I, I guess. I don't know. That's my pitch. <laughs> um, so at, at their height of power, or maybe better said, b before we saw the massive social issues plague both Rome and Athens, how would you describe their military and economic power? So, you know, the hundred years before Rome fell... And, and then what happened to these sources of power, military and economic, after both of these societies went through the transition, either for Rome, from the Republic to the Empire, or Athens just to its fall? Well, those are really loaded questions. I don't know if I can uh, do justice to them with my answer. But let me give you an anecdote about uh, Roman military power and the economics of it. In one of the early Punic Wars, in one of the early struggles with Carthage, you know, Rome had never had a big navy, right? But when they were uh, competing with Carthage for dominion over Sicily and Sardinia, the Romans said, you know what? It's time that we become a naval power. We can't keep expanding unless we do that. And they built a beautiful, big new navy. And they take it out to the seas and they go to war with Carthage and the whole thing sinks. Like they lose a bunch in battle and then there's a storm and, you know, we're talking hundreds of ships just gone. And Rome is, you know, not looking too good at that moment. But a bunch of really rich Romans say, you know what, we're going to privately fund a construction of a entirely new navy that's even better than the one we just lost. In return for our investment, we're going to get some nice spoils of war. And so they built up a new navy. So there you see the kind of... Uh, First of all, the, the fact you see that Rome had a really rich uh, elite who had a lot of money they could invest in projects. Uh, this elite was very much eager to keep expanding militarily. And I think that that, you know, that story can be can give you some ideas of where we can go in the conversation. So having outlined that, of course, the comparison that many folks like to make is, ah, well, ancient Rome is like modern America. 
So having laid out a little bit about their the resources that ancient Rome had to draw on in order to maintain its military power, where does the U.S. sit today relative to, well, where does U.S. military strength maybe sit today relative to ancient Roman military strength? Let me flip this question back on you guys. What what do you guys think? Because I think that you might know more about the U.S. military than I do. So what is your hunch? I think that's a great question. My My understanding of it is that compared even to Rome, but in particular to Athens, the United States has a massively preponderant military situation compared to potential rivals, right? So Athens, when it fell, it, it fell to Sparta uh, because uh, in part because it made a lot of bad decisions, but in part because Sparta was able to put forth a really substantial um, you know, military threat that, that defeated it, that defeated Athens over and over in battle. And Rome nearly ruined itself in the Punic Wars fighting Carthage. And it, and it had won, but at massive expense, uh, you know, in, in manpower and money. Um, I don't know the numbers, but the impression is that it was a substantial amount of, you know, substantial amount of wealth and manpower that left Rome depleted. And if we think of the second Punic War, like Cannae, you know, they lost tens of thousands of people to Hannibal at Cannae. And then they just had to go dip deeper into their own population and pull out even more um, and recruit tens of thousands of more raw troops to to go continue to fight Hannibal roaming around Italy. And I don't think the United States has faced a, th- a threat a military threat like either of them did, like either Athens or, or Rome did since th- – that was at all like that since World War II. Um, since then, you know, the, the Soviet Union was absolutely terrifying, but it was not ruinous to defeat it. And since the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States is so preponderant that the idea of the United States exhausting itself in a war is – Seems a little odd. And I know people like to point to the United States getting mired in the Middle East and thinking, ooh, like that was very expensive and costly and destructive for us and, and that could bring us down. But compared to even our experience in World War One and Two, um, much less the Roman experience against Carthage or the Athenian experience against Sparta, I think they're just incomparable. Um, I, I think this is this is one of those points that's a big difference. Yeah, I I basically agree with Eric. I think if you look at the comparison that's often made with the fall of the Roman Empire is that Rome became overstretched, depleted its resources as it expanded its borders, and eventually it collapsed in on itself as a result of that. And they say, ah, well, look at what America is doing today. And yeah, you can see some similarities, but the, the thing that's not taken into consideration with that argument is that before Rome became overstretched, and fell back in on itself, it had been dealing with warfare on a scale relatively unimaginable to really anything America had seen for centuries. So America has never suffered a defeat like Cannae. And by hand, more people were killed by sword on the Roman side in Cannae in one day than, than the U.S. suffered uh, deaths in Vietnam throughout the entire war. So, I mean, Rome was was constantly subject to massive military setbacks and had to draw on its resources for hundreds and hundreds of years before it started dealing with this sort of overstretch that people generally uh, refer to. And I think the other distinction that's worth pointing out is even though, uh, 
uh, Lantern Jack, to your point about the the military that or the uh, navy that Rome put together in in the first Punic War, they used some technological advances there, right? They they had I forget what it's called, but like the the crow peak because the Romans didn't really have institutional naval knowledge, so they said, ah, well we'll just fight the Carthaginians on sea like we fight battles on land. So this this plank would drop onto other boats and. The soldiers would just storm across and basically fight land battles on sea. So it's not that there weren't technological innovations, but the the gap between the technological innovations that existed in the ancient world versus the technological innovations, the military technological innovations that exist today are really quite vast to the point where even the Roman Republic, sort of in its heyday when it's pretty powerful, could be threatened by hordes of migrating barbarians. Because if you had 200,000 people with swords that grew up tough lives, they can be really fierce warriors. And that just doesn't exist today. In order to be able to compete with the American empire, if you want to call it that, you can't just have several hundred thousand determined people. You also need an array of naval and air power and space power and nuclear power that just is not entirely comparable. And the last thing I'll add to that is that, you know, the United States is in a position that uh, that Roman Athens never were, which is that we face no threats to our borders, right? Our Navy is so dominant that nobody will invade our shores within our lifetimes unless all of our Navy just like sinks one day. And we're not being invaded by Canada. We're not being invaded by Mexico. So we're not facing those border pressures that Rome faced as a republic and as an empire, and certainly not facing the pressures that Athens faced. And with respect to military spending, you know, it seems like we have spent a lot uh, recently, but as it turns out today, for example, our military spending as a percentage of GDP is lower than it has been at any time since before World War II. And so as a trend, the United States is actually spending less of its net resources on military. It's down to about three and a half percent of our economy. Um, you know, and if we compare that again, I don't have numbers, but if we compare that to the kinds of mega warfare that the Athenians and Romans were fighting, they were drawing on huge amounts of their resources that could have been used for something else. And they ended up being ruinous. Right. So I think, I mean, you guys brought up a lot of fascinating points. It's definitely true that the, the involvement in battles and warfare of the average citizen of both Athens and Rome is something that for us is unfathomable. I mean, you could have, you know, anywhere, you could have 10 to 20% of your male citizen population just vanish in one campaign. Now, that is hard for us to imagine. I will take issue with, Xander, your point about innovations, uh, because I think that it's a misconception that the ancients did not see rapid innovation. I think that they saw extremely rapid innovation. I think the period from 900 BCE to about 100 BCE saw more rapid technological innovation than than the world would see again until the early modern period. And so when if you read the description of Thucydides of the Peloponnesian War or the description of Polybius of the Punic Wars, technologies were evolving so fast that every battle could have a new weapon that was not there in the previous battle. Like Thucydides explains he describes a new kind of battering ram that was developed during the Peloponnesian War, which basically contained a flamethrower in it. It was like this battering ram that had a bunch of burning coal inside of it. And then there was like a, an air pump 
on the back. That's super cool. <laughs> so, you know, things were were really changing. And, you know, just compare the Macedonian phalanx uh, formation of the 300s BCE to the Spartan formation of the 500s, right? It's, it's a different thing. I mean, it looks kind of the same from if you were like flying on a drone, you know, it would look uh, kind of similar. But when you get into the details, it's a really different uh, strategy. So we should not underestimate the rapid innovations that were happening. I agree with you. And I certainly did not mean to imply that technological innovation, even astonishing technological innovation, didn't occur in ancient times. I was just trying to draw a distinction between the size of the gap between some of the most powerful empires back then and today. I mean, if you want to talk about formations in the ancient world, there was the phalanx and the phalanx itself definitely developed. And for folks who don't know the phalanx, a bunch of guys would line up in in several rows with long spears and it'd be kind of like a a marching wall of metal. The Romans uh, changed their tactics and developed a more flexible sort of maneuvering that was referred to as the maniples. And that really basically made the phalanx outdated and unable to compete in battle, as I understand it for the most part. So there were innovations. Well, hold on, let, let me just jump in there because uh, that's, again, uh, debatable, right? The, the maniple formation was definitely better on hilly terrain, but the phalanx was never surpassed as in its effectiveness on flat terrain. So it wasn't pure. Uh, the Romans did not conquer the Mediterranean because they had unequivocally better fighting tactics. They conquered the Mediterranean because they had the best message, the best propaganda, and they were able to divide and conquer. Ooh, tell us more about that. Well, I'm thinking of um, this famous scene in Virgil's Aeneid, which was like the national epic that the Romans had all their children read in school. And, uh, you know, the Romans always felt a kind of inferiority complex to the Greeks who had invented everything. So there's this scene where the hero Aeneas travels to the underworld and sees the ghost of his father. And his father gives him a prophecy of the future greatness of Rome. And he says, leave it to others to carve marble into beautiful faces and to measure the tracks of the stars across the heaven and to do astronomy and philosophy, blah, blah, blah. Leave that to other people. But you, Roman... You will rule and you will bring down the arrogant and you will uh, forgive the humble. So like they had this kind of the Roman policy was divide and conquer, uh, always reward those who are loyal to you, always punish those who are disloyal to you. And they had a very good track record of always honoring those commitments. And, you know, that was that was the perfect formula for expanding into the full Uh, Mediterranean area. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear. So from the waves of Tiber did I, the tired Caesar, and now this man has become a god. <laughs> Boom, mic drop. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think actually what's in part really interesting about this conversation is that the Romans, despite – I mean, one of the amazing things about the Roman uh, civilization as a whole is that despite ruinous expense over and over and loss of life over and over, you know, even after the Republic fell, they – you know, I mean, they lived under a, an empire, but they reform. You know, they were able to reform repeatedly, crisis after crisis, and then continue to expand. Right, their civilization didn't collapse, but merely their their political system of a republic. And you know, they you know it turned out that the empire was in a way more stable. Although I would I would bring debate the you know bring some debate to that because they had constant internal civil war. I think the thing that amazes me most about the Romans over their entire history was just how much stuff happens to them and much of which they cause themselves. Again, I think the the lack of like clear succession planning emperor to emperor was disastrous for them. But over hundreds of years, stuff that you'd figure would cause a state to fall and and collapse just didn't the Romans kept marching, you know, chugging on? Whereas, of course, the Athenians were were leaving out of this discussion in part because after they exhausted themselves and were defeated by the Spartans, the Macedonians rolled in. Alexander showed up. He said, "I'm in charge now. Greece, you're all with me." And they're like, "Great!" And then, but then they went and they conquered, you know, most of the known world and and Persia and Egypt. And one thing that I don't have a good answer to is. You know, so we're talking about in part the risks to the United States Republic and our, you know, quote, empire from over exhaustion, from overreach, from spending, from inequality and stuff like that. But to a large extent, if we if we switch Athens for Greece, both Rome and Greece, after their greatest crises, then went on massive expansion campaigns that are almost unimaginable today. And Lantern Jack, what do you think was the root of this resilience? Because we talk about fragility a lot, but what was the root of the resilience that caused these civilizations to continue to expand? Uh, you mentioned propaganda and and maybe some of it, I mean, it may be that. It may just be the like the attractiveness of their of their system. Um, or of their of their rule of their civilization, but what else might have been going on? 
That's a great question, and I'm going to give you a very broad, sweeping answer, which is always dangerous for historians to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. I love your courage as an historian to give us a broad, sweeping answer. You're totally right. The Roman Empire was incredibly resilient and stable and went on to live a life of over a thousand years. I think that the stability and resilience of the Roman Empire was largely due to the sophisticated and stable nature of the institutions that that came over from the Republican era. And I think that the Roman Republican institutions in turn uh, were so great because they, the Romans, had learned from earlier examples of city-states attempting Republican structures before them. And those city-states had learned from earlier city-states going back all the way to like the 9th century BCE when you get this explosion of constitutional city-states in the Mediterranean. So in other words, I think there was a like, I don't know, six or 700 year process where constitutions got better and better and better in the sense of creating more stable states. And the Romans were kind of late in that ecosystem and they had a great, stable, sophisticated constitution. And when they became an empire, a lot of those institutions just continued. And I think that was really the bedrock of the Roman Empire. How about how about Greece when, you know, after ruining itself in, you know, after sort of all of Hellas ruining itself and a lot of people dying and stuff getting burned and money being spent in the Peloponnesian War was then taken over by this like backwater of Macedon, you know, who was kind of considered, you know, they were they were considered they they were not looked upon as one of the elites of the Hellenic Confederation. But they show up, they take over, and then all of a sudden, Greece explodes and takes over most of the known world. How did that happen? I think a similar thing happened there, that you know, all of the technology, culture, language, the institutions that were promoted, all of that stuff that Macedon projected onto the world, they took from the democracies and republics around them, right? The, the Macedonians conquered the world, and everywhere they went, they built in every city a theater, an assembly space, a music hall. They brought the you know Greek uh, culture there. They didn't invent any of that, but they saw that those things were very useful. So they, they again, benefited from the uh, highly sophisticated social technologies that were developed in constitutional states, and then they used those to project their power and influence on the world. I like that term, social technologies. That's like... I'm going to go away and think about that because that there's like a lot loaded in that term that makes a lot of sense. I kind of want to piggyback on that answer, Lan- Lantern Jack, to ask you about, I guess I would call it social, um, social or cultural identity. In my day job, I, I'm a geopolitics analyst and actually something that's pretty important in geopolitics is cultural identity because the way that a society sees itself ends up to a certain degree determining the in-group and the out-group and therefore the in-group out-group behavior that that society has with other societies. So when we think about the ancients, either ancient Rome or ancient Athens, I imagine that these people were quite different than us in terms of how they saw themselves, either through these, these institutions like the theater or how they approached philosophy or intellectual examination, science, if you can really use the word science for back then. 
how, how are they either similar to us or different than us in terms of how they saw themselves? Geez, there's many ways we can go with that question. Um, I mean, one of the common topics that comes up in ancient Greek history is the question of your city-state identity versus your um, identity in terms of the larger Greek tribe you belong to, like the Dorians or the Ionians or the Aeolians. And then even larger is the Greek identity versus barbarian. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, the, there's a lot of issues there. It's easy to think that the Greeks were very narrow-minded in, in their identity and that they were xenophobic and, and did not consider barbarians to be at their level. Some of that is true for some periods in some cities, but at the same time, the Greeks also came up with the ideas of cosmopolitanism and you, I would say even multiculturalism. I mean, there's some writers that say all humans all around the world are the same and uh, skin color is just due to geographical accident and we're all part of one giant community. So you have a, a range of ideas ranging from very narrowly city-focused to very cosmopolitan. One thing I want to kind of pick on is how just the people of antiquity acted similarly or differently to and from us. Like I think in the West in particular, it's pretty common to look to, look to the Orient, just kind of everything east of, I don't know, I'm going to be getting in trouble here, but like, I don't know, Poland or something and everything east of Greece as the Orient. These people are different. They act differently. You know, we see in the movie 300, you know, the the Spartans, like they're kind of like frat boys, right? They're very familiar <laughs> to us. They're they're a little hyper, like hyper masculine, but otherwise they're a lot like us. And then you have the Persians who are weird and Xerxes is like, covered in jewelry and he's brown and, you know, it's super different. And so I think there's a lot that makes us think, a lot of pop culture that makes us think of the Romans and Greeks as like us in a lot of ways and acting like us in a lot of ways. But I've heard a lot of anecdotes about how, about how in some ways, like the behavior of the Greek, in particular the Greeks, but also the Romans is like, just as people and their society is almost just unimaginably different from us. And uh, I was... I was wondering if you and your much higher experience have seen some of the same. Like, do you think that the Romans and Greeks as people, that their society is something that if we like popped into it, we would find somewhat familiar or we, if we would find it kind of alien and weird? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, first of all, the movie 300 sucks, uh, which I'm sure you agree with. Totally. Yeah. And and I it's just it's it simplifies the narrative so much that it's just a disgrace. But um yeah, I think that it's tempting, especially given the history of our education going back a few hundred years, to see the Greeks and Romans as us. I think the reality was obviously very different. Um, you know, we now know, thanks to archaeology that's been done in the past few decades, that there were over a thousand city states around the Mediterranean that had a lot of similarities with each other. And the majority were Greek, but a lot of them were not Greek. You know, Carthage was a republic, right? Rome was a republic. There were Etruscan city-states that were also constitutional states. There were, um, so, you know, we think of Carthage as being kind of different, but I think uh, 
all of these city-states were much more similar to each other than they are to us today. So I think Carthage would have been much closer to Athens or Rome than either Athens or Rome was to us today. Uh, you know, if we look to the Spartans, for example, as much as 300 makes us think of them as like a bunch of American frat boys, the, you know, the other stories that kind of trickle out into, I don't want to say pop culture, but sort of my level of understanding, which is like, I read a few books a few times are that, you know, for example, the, the Spartans were like really into, you know, the Spartans would, for example, like as, as a, what is it? A, a rite of passage. Like they'd have young Spartan men just like murder slaves to get their first kill. And the men would all live in barracks and they'd like have to sneak off at night to have sex with their own wives. And it was like kind of shameful. Everyone would pretend that they weren't doing it. And then the wives would have orgies with each other and maybe slaves and all sorts of weird stuff um, that was probably, you know, written in part by more cosmopolitan Greeks about, Ooh, look at these weird Spartans. But, you know, one, are any of these examples like actually true? And two, are they, do you think they're like sufficiently, do you think that these examples are good ways of saying, yeah, look at those examples and you'll, you'll see some of like the, the alienness of ancient, uh, you know, the ancient Mediterranean or are these kind of outliers or, or are they mostly considered to just be kind of propaganda? Regarding your question, are these stories true about Sparta? It depends who you ask. Uh, what I can tell you is that all of the sources that describe what you're saying about how like the Spartans would kill members of the Helot population and the slave population for sport, those come from much, much, much later sources like Plutarch. So we're talking 500 years after the end of the Peloponnesian War with Athens. Not the most reliable source, one might say. It wouldn't really stand up in court. Uh, but some historians do believe that story i don't know i think sparta is really interesting because uh you know how we view all of these ancient societies de depends so much on our current politics so like you know in the early 20th century the british kind of took uh ancient athens as their mascot <laughs> and then the germans kind of took sparta as their mascot and I think that has influenced the way we perceive both societies a lot since then. Oh, I just learned something that that makes a lot of sense. But to go back to your um, earlier question about, you know, where can we position ourselves in relation to uh, Athens and Rome? You know, I think that in each case, you know, there, there aren't that many options. You know, you can discount the, the empire. You can discount Rome's early years as a small city state, you know, in, for Athens, you can discount post Peloponnesian war. You can discount the time before the reforms that made it a democracy. So we're kind of narrowed down to a small window in each case for comparisons. Right. And, uh, in terms of the military that you asked about earlier, a lot of historians have drawn parallels between the Athenian Alliance known as the Delian league, uh, They've drawn parallels between that and NATO. And then uh, other people have drawn parallels between like, the Punic Wars and either the Cold War or World War II. So, you know, in that kind of narrows us down to the, for Athens, it would be, you know, 480 to 430 BCE. 
is the kind of main candidate for a parallel. And then for Rome, it would be like one, like 200 to 130 BCE. So one question that I've wanted to ask a, you know, relative expert for some time, and in particular, a fellow podcaster, someone who's, who's like good at just kind of letting it fly is about uh, civic virtue. And so this is, I'll, I'll admit my bias. This is a bit of a hot button topic for me because uh, I'm kind of into it. But, you know, Aristotle in the politics talks about three kinds of governments, rule by one, rule by a few, and rule by many, um, and how there are noble and corrupt versions of each, or at least that's my take on it. And what he says is that to some extent, as civic virtue declines over time in each of these forms of government, they move from the noble to the corrupt, and then they are overthrown. And that was essentially going on is that the noble versions exist because they remember the corrupt form of the last government that they overthrew. And then over time, that memory is lost. People become more corrupt, more selfish, more petty. And then eventually, the form of government becomes so degraded that it's once again overthrown. And so that he believes that there's essentially, if you have these forms of government that are too pure, that don't have a lot of balance, that there's a cycle of movement from noble to corrupt and then government to government that occurs. Um, and and the I, I see the crux of it as civic virtue. Um, and one is my interpretation of Aristotle in the politics, like at all spot on here. And two, um, you know, Based based on your interpretation of it, did you see, or do you see, do we see in antiquity that kind of cyclical movement that Aristotle describes? Well, I think that your description captures uh, what's called the ancient theory of anacyclosis or anacuclosis of this kind of great cycle of civilizational evolution, right? And Aristotle is one thinker who gives a view of part of that. Plato gives uh, another view of the same process in the late books of the Republic when he describes the transition from, you know, perfect state to aristocracy, to oligarchy, to democracy, to, you know, mob rule, to tyranny. And Polybius is, you know, writing after Plato and Aristotle. He really synthesizes this theory uh, into a much more full and complex system and he kind of ties the loop where he says you don't only get this uh movement from one to another to another to another but then at the end it kind of loops back to the beginning and jump starts to cycle over again right and that is the way that the ancient political thinkers uh the ones that we have at least uh, whose writings survive saw how political systems evolved that's really, really unpopular as a view today, right? Like there's, I don't know of any mainstream academic historians who uh, today who subscribe to that view of history. Uh, I still think it's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, obviously these thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, and Polybius, they, they were not just sitting in a library making this up. They were observing the city-states that were all around them and there were hundreds of them and they had access to historical records of hundreds of examples of constitutional states. So I think that there is something there that deserves to be examined and uh, how the actual 
degradation of civic virtue, if, if that's a thing, like among the people kind of tracks the parallel degradation of the institutions is another big question. Um, you know, Plato in the, in the Republic, he describes this kind of parallel track between the, like he'll describe how the oligarchic man is born to a family of aristocrats and how the oligarchic man's son is then uh, a Democrat and how the Democrat man son is a would be tyrant. Right. So like he's kind of implying that the institutional and constitutional evolution is in parallel to the change in the uh, character of the populace. And he says that the character of the populace determines the structure of the whole. And I'm putting you on the spot, man. Do you think that there is, uh, do you think that there is credibility to what Plato, Aristotle and Polybius, and of course, Machiavelli later are saying here? You are putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so hard. <laughs> um, I think there is some truth to what they're saying. And I think that there is also increasing scholarly interest in those theories. And so I'm excited about what uh, scholarship will bring to light in the upcoming years. Mm, yeah, good answer. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I think one of the things to pay attention to with respect to modern democracies, not just the United States, but Europe as a whole and, and other democracies throughout the world is uh is this sense of civic virtue and and how people interact, how people choose to interact with government? Um, you know, one of the things I think is that one of the things going on in the United States today is that politicians and citizens alike have forgotten a lot of their, you know, what we think of as civic virtue, uh, and are are kind of in it to win it at all costs, and are willing to let kind of virtuous behavior break down uh, and take a second seat to winning. Um, yeah, and you know, one thing that. Plato and Aristotle and Polybius all agree on, and I think we can agree on too, is that education is absolutely crucial in any constitutional mm, yeah. state. You have to teach the new generation of citizens to value their civic institutions and their civic roles. Yes. Uh, and our founding fathers felt the same way. You know, Jefferson was big on it. And uh, of course, uh, Ben Franklin, when asked after the Constitutional Convention, what kind of government uh, the Americans would have, he said, a republic, if you can keep it. That's a great one. Oh, it's one of my favorites. And of course, that's that's probably the thing I, I think of most as a parallel to ancient Rome is when we see the breakdown of what of what's called most maiorum. And I think Mike Duncan in The Storm Before the Storm talks about this really well, is that most maiorum, these, these rules that people agree to when they interact with politics, because you want to win, but you know, you're only willing to, you're only going to go so far, right? You're only going to do so much to win. Um, and when someone else wins by those rules, you, you let it go and you say, great, you're in charge now. Good luck. Um, you know, seeing that breakdown in the late Roman Republic, I think is for me, the most powerful parallel that that you know I think about when I when I think what can we learn from the ancient world. I mean, I can't disagree with you there. So, Lantern Jack, before we round up today, I do want to take you up on an offer because in our 
communication before this episode, you said that you, you, you play this game with your friends where you have them ask you any about any modern concept and see if you can find an ancient parallel. So Eric and I have taken up the challenge and we have a few that we want to throw your way. Ready? What is your ancient... <laughs> <laughs> what is your ancient parallel for tacos? Hmm, tacos. Uh, can I do fast food for you? You may do fast food. All right. So, uh, in my mind, they're like the same kind of revolution we've seen now with fast food happened in the ancient world as the you know bread revolution. So, in other words, the domestication of grain completely changed the human diet. I would say that you know bread was the world's first Big Mac. It was the big. Uh, sorry, I would say that bread was the Big <laughs> Mac of the ancient world. And uh, so, you know, you before the uh, domestication of grain and the technology to make bread, there wasn't as much food available, but the food was generally better. Right? People ate nuts. And meat and fruit, and uh, that was you know the the paleo diet, right? Even now we think of it as a healthy diet. Uh, mm. They gave that away in exchange for mass-produced food that could feed. Huge. Did they all get fat? <laughs> well, I don't. It's hard. I mean, who knows? We can't tell that far back, but uh, they definitely. Like in the epic of Gilgamesh, the bread-eating inhabitants of the city are portrayed as kind of you know weaker than the wild men of the forest, like Enkidu, who is like this beast almost. So there was this, uh, and you get the same thing in the Odyssey. Odysseus encounters people who don't eat bread, who are you know wild people, and they're usually bigger and scarier than the people who have settled for an agricultural diet. So maybe. Fascinating. Eric, do you have any you want to throw at Lantern Jack? Sure, I've got one. So uh, in the in the modern West, it's pretty common to have sort of fringe parties that represent um, acceptable but small ideologies. So libertarianism, uh, the Green Party, even, you know, more extreme forms of socialism, stuff like that. These are, you know, these are guys who have dedicated followings, but no real impact on the political sphere, but there are still people who are really into them. Are there any ancient parallels for that? Well, that's a really difficult question because of the nature of our evidence. You know, we only have records of the really big players. So, I mean, in a thousand years from now, or in 2000 years from now, if there's been a cataclysm in like the fall of the eventual whatever American or Chinese empire in the process. Will archaeologists 2000 years from now know that we had third parties? It's debatable. If they only have the kinds of texts that we have from ancient times, like the classic texts that became school, the school curriculum, they might not know about third parties. So uh, partly, I think it's an unanswerable question. I think what you do see is uh, that in most of the powerful sovereign city-states that we know of, political divisions seem to fall around two main camps, but there were other voices. 
and uh, there were occasional conspiracies that came out of left field, as it were. Like the the first time that the Athenian democracy was overthrown in 411 BCE, I think, uh, Thucydides says that there was a group of rich people that met in somebody's house and they came up with this plan and then they got supporters and you know, dislodge the two main groups that were calling the shots up till then. So, you know, it's a, it's a really hard question, but I think it's an interesting one and, and there is stuff to explore there. Cool. Lancer Jack, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've learned a lot. And, you know, of course, I think the, what's the reconsider takeaway that the, the question of, of drawing parallels between the modern world and antiquity, uh, is is a murky one, right? And and something that we can't do with too much confidence. There's a lot that we can learn, and we also have to keep in mind the the specific details of the things that were very different about these ancient societies to what we have today. Um, and we should be, you know, as you mentioned about historians, we should be cautious about being too uh, aggressive with our too aggressive with our, you know, with with the parallels that we draw. I couldn't agree more. Mm. All right, Lantern Jack, where can our listeners find you? So the podcast is Ancient Greece Declassified. It's available on all the usual apps people use, as well as the website, which is greasepodcast.com. And all the social media stuff is at Grease Podcast. So Twitter at Grease Podcast, Facebook and Instagram at Grease Podcast. And uh, so there you go. Cool. And reconsider listeners, if you are excited to hear more of us uh, talking with Lantern Jack about parallels between the ancient world and the modern, we actually flip positions. Uh, so if you go to Ancient Greece Declassified, you can find our episode with him um, among a number of other sort of not uh, ancient. Uh, so he interviews us and a number of other not so experts on the ancient world about what we're curious about, what we don't understand, what we think's going on, stuff like that. Um, and that's going to inform some later episodes where essentially Lantern Jack is going to be answering the questions that we have, which, you know, I'm of course very excited to go listen to. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm of course already subscribed and I encourage you guys to subscribe as well. So remember, folks. Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. Thank you so much, Lantern Jack. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.